Hello, we're back. Today's guest is Ian Murray. Ian is the co-founder of House 51, an award-winning research consultancy. In today's episode, you can expect to learn why everyone thinks they can do your job, the behavioural science problems that ad industry suffers from, bound rationality versus social pub- purpose, and much more. I only expected to chat to Ian for 30 minutes, and we ended up going for over an hour because the chat was just so good. So hopefully you enjoy the episode as much as we did recording it. Anyway, here's Ian Murray. I always start this podcast with a bit of a, a background into people's um, careers, how they got to where they are, why they got to where they are. So why don't you kick us off with how you ended up where you are and tell us where you are. Yeah, start with a really big question. Yeah. <laughs> why I am where I am, yeah. I don't go my, too introspective. I, 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 I ask myself that on uh, many occasions and never come up with a satisfactory answer, Kieran. Um, I think my story, I mean, obviously, the industry I work in is I'm, 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 I'm a market researcher, really, and a behavioural, if, if you will, a behavioural scientist that works around advertising and creative businesses rather than being a creative person myself and so I think my story in my industry is very similar to a lot of people I, I, I rarely in 20 years in my industry come across many people who plan for a career in research it tends to be something that they land up in from somewhere else so um, my story was I actually started off in uh, academic research uh, in politics and opinion polling um, uh, I did a politics degree at university and then I spent the first two years of my career uh, working as a research assistant on a very large uh, government-funded um, uh, research project into citizenship. And um, at that point, I was probably thinking about an academic career. And uh, mm. during the two years, I kind of realised that uh, I maybe wasn't as kind of committed to the academic route as I thought I was. Uh, by that time, I had a master's degree in research methodology that was supposed to train me for doing a PhD in an academic career. And then I had to think, well, what transferable skills have I got if I want to jump into the, the, the world of commercial work and market research? Frankly, just at that point, seemed like a, you know, an obvious kind of route to go, you know, to kind of use all the training I had and get paid for it, frankly. So um, 20 years ago, that looked like um, it was Maury at that time. So it was opinion polling and political and social research to start with. And then I suppose what happened was just my kind of interest in popular culture and creativity and all those other things gradually over time uh saw me, you know, uh, gravitate more and more towards research that was to do with uh, advertising and brands and media in particular. And so then um, six years ago, uh, I founded my own business called House 51, and that really is focused uh, on media brands and communications research, and in particular, infusing that research with the really rich world of behavioural science and social science and cross-cultural psychology. And so that's what I do now. I, I run my own little uh, creative research consultancy, working with a wide range of media and uh, brand owners, uh, particularly on the kind of uh, hard strategic questions that maybe some of the more mainstream research uh, doesn't answer. So that's me. Yeah, nice. It's uh, interesting that you obviously super academically focused for a while and then just decided to sort of veer away from it um obviously quite a big a big change there how did it how did you know your first couple of years in the sort of commercial world compare to being um in the academic world for so long i think i think probably it wasn't as big a change as it might have been because obviously i was uh, i was i was quite early on in my career at the time and so I think at that time I didn't see it as such a big change. I was simply saying, I've got a, a skill set here. Where else can I apply that skill set? And I suppose I picked the entry point into the commercial world that was most like the thing I'd been doing before. So on a really day-to-day basis, I was simply kind of going from something that was uh, academically focused, but then effectively at that time, uh, the first role at Mori, it was simply, you know, 
how are people going to vote in elections, you know, what do they think about kind of social issues. So in some ways, I picked the, the, the most straightforward entry point in the commercial world based on what I'd been doing beforehand. I think the transitions that were more difficult after that was that, um, the, the, I would say, the leap from doing... Um, uh, opinion polling or social research into doing brands and advertising research was a was a was a greater leap because I think what happens is is there are uh, subcultures within every industry and uh, there's a there's a you know there's a certain kind of strong culture around advertising and marketing which you know. I wasn't exposed on a day-to-day basis when I was working more with government departments and mm-hmm. and you know uh, local government and you know third sector organisations. My first job, so funnily enough, the leap was probably more difficult when I decided I wanted to move into uh, uh, research to do with advertising and brands, and it was jumping from academia into uh, market research per se. Mm. Was the the biggest difference then? I guess. For the polling data and stuff, that's probably mostly quantitative research, right? Or you're getting quantitative results, you know, X number of people are voting this way, X number of people are voting that way. And then obviously you come into brands and are they more qualitative focused or is it still a mix of quantitative, quantitative difficult word, um, as well? Yeah, I mean, well, it's an interesting uh, thing. One of my, and I suppose this is where I'll, you know, start to uh, give you my kind of personal kind of take on things rather than how the maybe the industry really is i think the kind of that that kind of the silos if you like around methodology so quantitative and qualitative being the most typical ones and again uh, a lot of researchers actually it's part they're, they're almost professional identity is bound up in a data collection methodology whether that's quantitative or qualitative and that's something i've really tried to resist my my whole career. So because academically I was trained in all of these disciplines so I could work across, you know, quantitative and qualitative work, for example, I never found any difficulty in pulling in frameworks from lots of different academic disciplines. Um, But it's still true that there is a, uh, there's a lot of people out there in the industry uh, that uh, have a certain range of kind of norms and conceptions about, you know, what different types of research are for and what types of research are appropriate in different uh, fields. Um, so brand research, uh, I, I think my experience is, is that uh, it's it's simply you pick the method that's right for the question that you're being asked, really. You know, and so that means for us, certainly at House 51, we do a whole wide range of things. We do a lot of quantitative research. We do qualitative research. Sometimes what we do is we don't do any primary research at all. We just go away mm. and we, we we do a review of stuff that's already happened, you know, and kind of put that together. Uh, sometimes we make a little film, you know. It's, uh, it's, it's whatever is the kind of inputs that will help our clients, our businesses, understand what's going out on out there in the real world. So... Um, through my career, I've done I've done all the different methods, but I've really tried to resist being defined by any of them. <laughs> yeah, it's probably an advantage that you had by coming from academia rather than coming from like traditional training or whatever, because you were exposed to so much. So, yeah, as you said, you didn't adopt any as like your how you view you know to the man with the hammer, everything in the world's a nail, or you know, and you've managed to avoid that, which has obviously um, obviously helped you. It's difficult to avoid, though. I mean, it's a thing that uh, I mean, just a, an anecdote from last week. You know, we we I've got I have um, you know, and House Fifty One we work with a, a wide range of collaborators, and I've got guys that I've known for twenty years, and I've worked with in different agencies that I collaborate with on projects, and they introduce me to clients, and vice versa. You know, we do that kind of thing all the time, and. I was put in touch with someone last week uh, and the first thing they said was is that, you know, I'd been described as a quant agency that they could speak to. So this is someone who's known me for 20 years that still is, you know, insisting and in putting me into a methodological box. So it's a, it, it, and I think a lot of people, uh, you know, we're all human beings and we, we develop identities around a profession like anything else. And some people actually... Um, they enjoy they enjoy having an identity bound up in a certain you know approach to research and that's okay for them you know 
it's each to their own. But I, I, I try to take a much more holistic and eclectic approach. And uh, um, but you know, it, it's a constant battle. I think you know this idea that um, there's certain. Uh, where it gets very difficult is when you think when people start to believe there's a certain type of person that's associated with a certain type of methodology, you know. So mm. therefore, you don't do creative research if uh, if you're a quantitative researcher, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know that it's those kinds of stereotypes, professional stereotypes, that I think are the damaging thing, uh, and we need to try and avoid basically. Yeah. So you spoke a bit about how you worked um, for in like government. Um, situations there's a lot of interesting stuff about the framing of questions especially when it comes to political questions um there's examples of where they change the wording of um giving 16 year olds the vote which is obviously a big um it was a pretty big thing um in scotland for a while um and then uh, around the brexit and scottish independence how do they decide on the final wording and framing almost of um, these questions when they go out to the public because obviously you'll have one side that want it so they want to frame it in one way and the other side obviously is against it and they want it framed in a different way how do they eventually come to a decision who gets the the final say on how it's worded and basically how it's framed well the answer to that like everything Kieran, is it depends you know who's, <laughs> yeah. uh, and frankly to some extent you know i'll be very candid it'll depend who's paying for it you know mm. if it's a, a commercial piece of research um I mean, obviously, the, the, the purest way of doing this is to pilot. If, if you were just want to get the answer to a question for for the objective facts, you know, who believes what, you know, out there in the public, you know, you're very aware of framing effects and the effect of wordings. And what would tend to happen in the in the ideal sense is you would pilot questions and, you know, to try and avoid biases and make sure you're getting as, you know, an objective a read as possible. Um what then happens, of course, is that a lot of these questions get uh, established in practice over time. You know, so a lot of the polling companies will be have been using the same questions for you know, um, you know, many many years, and um, they 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 know they've got good questions basically. So there's something that happens there. I suppose what you're alluding to is is when you're responding to uh, events as they emerge or, or different events, and then you know. Frankly, you know, new new questions have to be created. Then there's always a debate about, you know, what is the appropriate frame. I think again, my answer to that is I don't think it's possible to write a completely neutral question. Mm. I think what you need to just simply be aware of, and when you're analysing the results or reporting it, and this is something that doesn't happen enough in the media, is yes. that you uh, report the answers in the context of you know, potential biases or framing effects that are there. But of course, that never happens in reality. You know, the media don't have time for that. And uh, and things tend to be reported in a much more kind of, you know, um, uh, top line way. And some of that nuance is taken out. So, yeah, ideally, a lot of the big polling companies do that. And they've got tried and tested questions for a lot of stuff. Um I don't know if you noticed that just this week, week there's been a, a debate down in, uh, it's in England because the census is coming up. And obviously in Scotland, the census has been delayed for a year because of the pandemic. But, you know, the, the census, uh, I think, is still going ahead in England. And they've had a debate down there just this week uh, that actually went to court about um, uh, the way that uh, gender identification was going to be asked in, in the census this year. And um, the, 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 the ONS who run the census, the Office of National Statistics Defence, was we are simply using the same question that we've used for over 100 years in the census, you know. So they were like, <laughs> you know, this is a tried and tested question. But the debate was, is the question still fit, you know, for where people are now in terms of, uh, you know, uh, the you know the, the culture around uh, gender identity, etc. So this is always a kind of an evolving thing. But um, ideally, you pilot them and you understand what works and what doesn't. But when things are, you know, moving so fast and they're so kind of complex and nuanced, I think there's a bit of trial and error in there as well. And so then you just have to be aware of potential biases and factor that into your kind of reporting. Yeah, difficult one to balance. Um, <clears throat> yeah, as you said, I think I think it's probably fair enough that yeah, there is no way to ask a neutral question, and there's always going to be um, slant on one side or the other. 
And yeah, I think the media definitely do miss out on noting that. But even even on all surveys, I think there needs to be more context given. You know, even you know if a newspaper reports you know X number of whatever readers um, feel this way or feel that way, that in itself because newspapers are inherently uh, or seem to be and increasingly uh, one way or the other. So you know, a poll of a thousand um, news, you know, the Guardian readers is not you know, equivalent to a, a different paper, a thousand different paper um, readers. And it can it can definitely be misleading when these things come out and the media just sort of blow them up as if that is the, the public opinion en masse. And it's not, um, it can definitely mislead people. It's That's a real problem. Uh, there was a, a, a guy uh, I saw writing last week and he made a good comment about this. And he was saying that... Um, he thought that he was talking about marketing more generally, but you know I would say it applies to market research uh, as well. As he was saying, he couldn't think of another discipline where um, you constantly had everyone else thinking they knew how to do your job. You know, um, imagine if you said to a brain surgeon or an engineer or an architect, you know, step aside, I'll I'll build that skyscraper. You know, but people because we deal with issues that are out there in the world and attitudes and behaviour, you know, that's kind of every day. Um, everyone feels that intuitively they know how to approach these issues. And I think that is a big challenge for our industry uh, all the time, because what you're alluding to there, exactly that, that a newspaper polling its readers is in no way representative of the population, you know. And, uh, and, and a lot of people just simply don't understand that. You know, they don't understand that there is uh, there's science involved in understanding people's opinions as well. You know, they simply think it's about asking questions and it's there's a science to asking questions and that often gets missed uh, with some of this, you know, more, if you like, um, uh, amateur kind of approaches to, you know, uh, yeah. you know things. So uh, that's a constant challenge for the industry about uh, and, and, and enabling people that use uh, data about attitudes and opinions and behaviour to understand the difference between something that's been, you know, um, professionally designed or something that's just simply a question on a website or, you know, uh, some readers, which, of course, aren't representative at all. So that's a constant battle, that one. Yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, viral doctors and epidemiologists or whatever they're called that can relate to the everyone knows how to tell everyone could tell me how to do my job. Uh, in the last year or so. <laughs> well, it was interesting because the, the, some comments on that article, uh, I think it was something on LinkedIn, and someone commented saying exactly that. Hey, this is a wider problem than you think it is. You know, mm. uh, you know, I can't remember what discipline he was in, but he was saying something like that. You know, I've spent the last year with laymen telling me, you know, uh, uh, that they've looked at a couple of graphs and decided they know what's happening with the pandemic. You know, so uh, maybe maybe it's maybe it's a maybe it's a broader cultural problem. But I feel as if um, the industry I work in is definitely the sharp end of it. You know that everybody intuitively thinks they know how to ask a question. Yeah, I think it carries over to um, some of advertising in the creative industry. Um, there's a lot of sort of copywriters that uh, echo that sentiment of because it is just words that everyone uses on a bit of paper, telling someone to buy something. Everyone thinks, oh, well, that's easy. You just you know tell them. But there's so much nuance and craft that goes into it. And when you and the other thing is when advertising is done well, it looks so simple. But in order for something to look simple, that's actually when it's at you know the most skilled stuff makes it look simple. Yeah, exactly. I think I think this is the, the this is the the um, intangibles, isn't it? To 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 the to the lay person, they don't see these things, but there's an incredible amount of craft uh, goes into making something look uh, simple. And I think that's the that, that's the same. Uh, we we have we have the analogous thing in, in in the research industry. So what we are trying to do all the time is, of course, support people to make decisions or be creative, or you know just you know um, or, or give them understanding that helps them understand the people they are trying to influence. And often what we are doing as well is just having to distill a lot of very complex and nuanced information mm. into into a very simple story. And then when you present that simple story. That's how you kind of make your work the most effective it can be. But then to the lay person, it looks simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've done this like fantastic work distilled into a super simple, what seems obvious. And then the catch-22 is, 
well, no, it only seems obvious because I've done my job well. If <laughs> you want me, you know, why, why are we paying? You know, why are we paying for this? Oh, I could have told you that. That's obvious, but and 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 that comes down to how it's valued as well, and that, that gets difficult. I mean, it's not unusual for us to distill six months of work and you know uh, an uplift thing for a, a senior client. It's uh, three three slides and a bit of video. You see what yeah, I mean? Yeah. You know, uh, but you know there was still six months to get there, um, and 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 that's the thing. You know, um, uh, that's why uh, I think we 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 do the work that we do. I think we're good at that, but it still means that uh, on a superficial level. Uh, it looks like a straightforward thing. You're telling people three things and showing them a, showing them a, an illustration of it. It's like, oh, why did that take six months? Because you're distilling down the incredible diversity and complexity of human beings, which are very, very difficult things to understand. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so if we move on to behavioural science, which is a, a personal... Um, topic that i just absolutely love um what what behavioral biases or behavioral science effects do you find yourself um talking to clients about the most often what are the what are the more the more common ones that you prescribe if you like so um this would be interesting to talk about this because the the main one that we talk about isn't a bias that is out there in the world in the consumer world or in the general public the main thing that we talk about has 51 are the biases that the marketing industry have? So mm-hmm. we we've spent a lot of time we, we we spent a, a lot of time doing this over the last few years, and we've done quite a lot of uh, uh, research with um, our friends at Reach Solutions, um, talking about uh, how uh, the main thing that's kind of missing in terms of understanding the mainstream, as we call them, is that we're applying uh, a lot of well, we did two things. We, we we have biases just generally about what we what we understand as a mainstream and who they are. And the main place that comes from is projecting our own motivations and values onto the mainstream and just assuming mm-hmm. we're like everyone else. And that was a thing we did. We've we've done two or three white papers. Uh, one in particular that kind of caught a reasonable amount of attention called the empathy delusion. And that was the essence of that, was that there was a whole range of things. Just because the the cultural experiences and the economic and social status of the people who tend to work in marketing, you know, they aren't the same as everyone else. They tend to be highly educated, more affluent, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that creates a whole lot of values and, and, and ways of interpreting the world that are different from a lot of the people that we're trying to influence with our, you know, communications and our brands and our marketing. So there's that one. And then the other one is, and this is the other interesting thing that's a, a, a key in about, and I wonder if you've come across this, you know, being someone who's a fan of behavioural science, is it something that's been growing uh, in influence over the last, say, 10 years, is the understanding that behavioural science itself is biased. And there's this idea that, uh, have you heard this term about weird science? Have you heard this? So um, I'm not sure. Right, so weird science, it's an acronym, and what weird stands for in this context is that the vast majority of behavioural science that gets done is Western, educated, mm, yes, and, yes, and, yes, and yes. from industrialised nations and rich and democratic nations. So it's this idea that, um, and, and a lot of it tends to be uh, the experiments that have been, you know, ended up being in the canon of behavioural science are experiments that tend to be done with, um, you know, like psychology students for class credit. You see, so there's a problem here about a lot of the stuff that we're using to generalise out to um, diverse populations is actually kind of based on, a bit like what we were talking about with newspapers earlier, you know, doing their own polls. It's it, 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 the, the findings and the biases that have been surfaced by behavioural science, there's a question now about can they be generalised to the whole population when uh, they, they, they emerge from experiments with, uh, frankly, privileged, highly educated, you know, um, Ivy League psychology students, you know? So we, we spend a lot of time talking about that and the kind of culture of, uh, what would you say, critical thinking there has to be about the behavioural science rather than just receiving it as, you know, um, the canon and gospel. And, and actually, 
our argument would be, and this is what we, we do in our work, is we, we use it all the time. Nearly every question we get asked by a client, we would go and start and say, well, what, what else is there out there about this already? What, what, what other frameworks are relevant? Um, what can we learn before we start designing a new piece of original research? So don't get me wrong, we use it all the time and we find it and it's a, it's a foundation of our business. But I think where we've developed a kind of distinctive approach and I would argue a competitive advantage is that we apply a very strong critical lens onto the science and are very aware of how it might not be representative and completely unbiased in itself. You know, so nearly every bias you can think about um, and you'll be, I think, you know, I think you're a fan of Rory Sutherland, aren't you? I think we, I think, you know. Um, who isn't the guys? Yeah, you know, uh, I've, uh, if, if we were doing a Zoom call here, you'd see his books are on my bookshelf as well. And yeah. You, yeah. And alchemy and things like that. Yeah. Well, yeah. one of the things that is great about um, Rory is that very eclectic approach he has and also that critical faculty that he applies to everything that he's he's looking at. There's very little that Rory talks about that he doesn't, um, you know, add something to because he's he's seen a he's seen a hole in it or he's seen a build on it, you know. So rather than just say, hey, here's a big list of biases, let's go and figure out how we can use them. It's about putting a whole lot of different things together and then testing if they apply in the context that you want to use them in. And context, I think, is the biggest thing that's missing, I think, from a lot of the application of behavioural science right now in advertising. It tends to be a bit one-size-fits-all, whereas most of these most of these effects that behavioural science have surfaced will be different depending on the context and the people that you're trying to influence, you know? Um, so I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all one. Size fits all, uh, one. We... Uh, we, we we look at um, we do a lot of we 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 do a lot of work uh, you know talking at the moment of course about people's attitude to risk for example you know mm-hmm. um, we do a lot uh, talking about things like um, uh, the idea of locus of control you know the idea about whether you've got a really strong sense yeah. of personal agency or whether you're someone who views the world as frankly one damn thing after another and something that happens to you and of course. A year and a half ago, we've got audiences that we look at for our clients and they would have a certain psychological profile on all of these traits. Mm -hmm. And of course, that has modulated uh, over the last year because the context, this massive exogenous event that has happened, has changed people's perceptions. And so they react to... uh, the bias reacts with the context. You can't separate the two, so you just have to kind of you know put it all together. So um, I, I resist the big list of behavioural biases, frankly, Kieran. You know, and uh, and treat things on a kind of more contextual basis and see what applies. Yeah, I mean that seems the the more rational approach. I like the idea that you don't just yeah, as you said, take them as gospel and just think, okay, this is the bias. This is how it works, like universally flat across everything. Instead, you you know, very introspective about, okay, well, will it work with this audience, um, that audience, or whatever. The um, locus of control point is particularly interesting. There was um, a great arc, I can't remember who wrote it, um, basically talking about the reason that um, conspiracy theories are on the rise, you know, the 5G, the Bill Gates is controlling you with his vaccine and all this um, through the pandemic is because people have lost um, abilities, you know, control over what they can do with their life. They're looking for control in other ways, so that's, and therefore they're more likely to believe these conspiracy theories, which is just like so fascinating. Is I think this is the thing that this is where this is the stuff that really interests me as well is about th- th- this intersection of, uh, you know, understanding and deeply, you know, what people's motivations are, you know, and the diversity of those motivations, and then seeing how those apply in different contexts, and that's the stuff that. All of the work that we do, we try to have those two lenses, you know, how those two things kind of come together. But the stuff around uh, how that then, you know, uh, I mean, this, this, I don't know if you've been watching, I think probably a lot of people in advertising and marketing, uh, maybe Adam Curtis is a little bit of a cliche, you know, but have you been watching any of Adam Curtis's stuff on BBC, you know, his latest uh, uh, series? Uh, no, I'm not. 
You should. I recommend it because he he deals with these really big, broad, sweeping. You know, trying to look at big forces in history and culture, and he's touched on that conspiracy theory thing. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's very interesting there, and it's something that we've uh, looked at a lot in our work, is this kind of shift there has been over the last, say, I'm, I'm going to use broad sweeping terms here, so don't hold me to this stuff. You know, no, you know, you know, make sure that caveat's in the the recording. You know, but say the last forty or fifty years. You know, some paraphrasing here what Curtis is arguing. The last forty or fifty years has been a detectable shift from what might be called collectivism you know, mm-hmm. to a much more individualistic uh, society. And this is particular in the West, but it's it's actually all over the world in places that you wouldn't think of as being individualistic cultures. So, uh, you know, and there's a whole lot of really big forces, you know, that he uses to explain why that is. But here's the interesting thing. So from a kind of cultural view, certainly in the UK or the US, we'd be uh, cross-cultural psychologists in their model. The UK and the US would be you know, definitive examples of individualistic cultures, yeah? And so we've got all of this communication and advertising is very much part of this. You know, it's all about, you know, self-actualization and being an individual and, you know, identity, etc., etc. And this sense that, you know, as individuals, we've got incredible control and power over our own lives. But the, the paradox is, is that a lot of the big exogenous stuff that's happened over the last, you know, 40 years has actually made us feel less in control. So we've got this tension between what a lot of popular culture and advertising and brands are telling us Mm -hmm. the world is like, i.e. individualism and self-actualization. And then, you know, take the UK context, you know, we've had a lot of kind of economic shocks and massive changes to the world of work in terms of deindustrialization and, you know, the changes there's been in communities and a lot less, and, you know, think about the, the mode that a lot of people work in now, you know, uh, much shorter term contracts, the gig economy, etc., etc. So there's this real tension there between, you know, what's out there in popular culture about how we're meant to be self-actualized individuals and this loss of collectivism and certainty, you know, uh, that there was before. And that's that interesting space that I think Curtis talks about a lot is, you know, what then fills that space? And one thing could be conspiracy theories. Uh, he, he talks about a thing about the Illuminati mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, has been one of the big conspiracy theories now. And it, I really recommend you go and watch these. I think he's really enjoying them, you know. But there's a point in it where the the Illuminati was actually uh, invented as a narrative in the 1960s to almost expose, uh, you know, almost like a joke, you know, as a satire to expose, you know, this type of kind of thinking in the 60s. And then it took on a life of its own. It's become a conspiracy of its own. You yeah. know, so the this idea of the unintended consequences of big forces is a really interesting area, but like no one's got the answer, you know, and yeah. that's the, the main thing, uh, you know. Uh, but yeah, I mean, sorry, that's a digression into Adam Curtis, but I do recommend him. I mean, yeah, you, you've sold it. You've, you've, yeah. you've sold it. You've sold it well. <laughs> the, <laughs> so if nothing else. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, 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 I think that probably a lot of people in advertising and marketing have been watching those. Um, the, when it, it, it launched on I, BBC iPlayer and I, I had several kind of people WhatsApp me and stuff, you know, you know about work and but then I'm saying, are you watching Adam Carter? So I think it's something that'd be quite good to kind of have a look at just to kind of be part of that advertising conversation you know yeah well yeah i mean i, I love these these sorts of uh, thoughts and explorations and often some of the most interesting things are things that we don't have answers to yet you know everyone just trying to you know kind of collectively trying to figure stuff out um you know like we don't know all these knock-on effects and whatever that uh, sort of adam seemed to be talking about yeah and i think that one of the other analogies i'd make to broadly, you know, and I'm using it in the broadest terms, marketing here. And when I talk about marketing, I'm including market research, advertising, creative, you know, I'm just using it as a catch-all kind of term. Yeah. One of the big things here is, is that, and again, I think a big thing I feel I've learned is that, uh, you know, we tend to have quite an analytical thinking style in the marketing industry. And so we're, we're, we're you know, we're quite, we're quite focused on, you know, prediction, and thinking mm-hmm. there are there are answers and you know destinations, 
And actually, you know, I think we miss out on a lot if we if we do that. And I think that, you know, the, the main thing is to have a kind of be a little bit more humble about what we, you know, we can actually, we can actually know and, you know, mm. always be open to the fact that there might be a different, uh, there might be a different story coming along the road, you know, from the one we've got right now and be prepared to change. And that's difficult because humans like certainty. And, you know, then we work in an industry that I think it puts a premium on it again, you know, predicting what people are going to do. I think, you know, technology and data has added to that culture as well. But having the kind of, say, you know, the kind of, yeah, the humbleness to think that yeah. actually we, we can't nail it all, we can't know it all, and, you know, we're just on a journey of understanding, basically, rather than prediction. Yeah, because no, nobody wants to be the guy that just says, I don't know all the time, but there is value in saying you don't know or, you know, you've only got X amount of, you know, 20% certainty. And as you said, in the in the unknowns, there can be, you know, better answers or, you know, whatever it is. But it's about, yeah, I guess, as you said, creating a culture where, it's okay not to know and everyone doesn't feel like they have to, you know, almost, yeah, say they know things that they just simply can't know just so they don't seem, you know, out of the loop or whatever it is. Just going back to Rory uh, a little bit, one of the guys that Rory talks about quite a lot in some of his earlier books, um, uh, have you come across uh, the economist John Kay? So Rory yes. talks an obliquity, you know, and that's one of that's one of John Kay's main points in obliquity that you know it's very rare, whether it's an economist or a marketer or whatever else, it's very rare to hear someone say it depends. You know, mm. the culture is you're all supposed to have a definitive answer, and you look weak or frankly yeah, yeah. woolly or fluffy if you say it depends or I don't know, but actually. The argument is if you take that, you know, philosophy of obliquity, that the most powerful kind of progress comes from understanding that there isn't a direct path to something and there's a lot of different inputs and things take a very kind of, you know, uh, you know, complicated route rather than a direct path. And I think that's a real kind of difficulty in our industry because there's a real premium on personally people want to look as if, you know, they're being uh, single-minded and definitive when actually the world that we're trying to understand is incredibly complicated and muddy and fuzzy. Um, Richard Thaler, the you know behavioral yep. economist, he's got a great uh, he's got a great uh, anecdote in uh, his book Misbehaving as well. And he talks about quite early on in his career, he was getting a bit kind of, I think he was getting a little bit disillusioned at one point and thinking, was the grass greener on the consultancy side, you know? And he mm. says, he says, I thought, he said, I thought about two kinds of consultancy that I could set up. He said, one was yes person consulting. <laughs> he said, but I realised the market for yes person consulting was already totally oversubscribed and overcrowded. So there was no point in doing that. And then the other one he thought about was devil's advocate consulting. <laughs> but the problem was there wasn't anybody in the market for devil's advocate yeah. consulting, you know. <laughs> and so the funny thing is I, I, that anecdote stuck in my mind because I feel, and I've got, I've got friends in the industry that tell me this all the time, that they think that House 51 veers too much towards devil's advocate consulting and that maybe I'm not as... Uh, I'm not as successful as I could be if I kind of, you know, moved a little bit to the other end of the spectrum. So, but yeah, I think that's a problem is that trying to be definitive all the time and prediction rather than understanding is a thing that I talk about. We we say we provide clients with understanding. We try to avoid prediction, basically. Yeah, I think I think the world needs a lot more devil's advocate, advocacy, I guess. Devil's advocacy? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, I think, you know, we're heading obviously... I don't even know how to put a year on it, the last I don't know, five years, you want to call it, um, into a more binary world. You're this or you're that, you're for or against, you're one side or the other, and there's no, absolutely no middle ground, there's no grey area at all. And I think we need more and more people um, to sit on the, the rational fence, see both sides, offer you know, some sort of middle opinion and be like, okay, the world doesn't have to be black or white, one or zero, it can be grey, it can be you know there is scope for your you both to be right or you both to be wrong or 
yeah, we just need a lot more grey area, uh, if you want to put it that way. Absolutely. And I think I'll throw one other thing into this part of the conversation, and I'm going to have to be a little bit careful about how much I say, because it's it's part of a new piece of research we're going to launch in a couple of months, so I can't say too much, you know, give it away too much. But that idea of polarisation, and there's no doubt there is polarisation in the world. I mean, I'm not disputing there's polarisation. But there's an interesting idea that actually... If, for want of a better word, the, the elites that tend to populate marketing or the media or even, you know, politics, um, they actually perceive more of this polarisation and it happens more in their culture, you know, uh, and in the, you know, the, the cultural cycles they're in than it does not maybe out there in the kind of the real world. And so there is that thing that I was... There's that thing again that we're we're projecting a a, a whole lot of values and norms onto the mainstream and it might not be as extreme out there as we perceive it to be because it's actually extreme in our world, you know. And so we're going to do some more, we've we've done some more research on that that we're getting published in a couple of months, exploring that. And it's it's not a definitive answer, but again, that idea about, yes, there's polarization, but being a aware of our biases around that and whether you know um you know we can we can be a bit more kind of conscious of it uh, rather than just think that the whole world is the same as us you know i think it's definitely a an online skewed thing where online and again because the nature of online is one you're not face to face with the person which is a huge factor and two there's no time for you know, especially, you know, places like Twitter, Instagram, there's no time for a nuanced conversation and no one's there for a nuanced conversation. So you hear one snippet, you make your mind up about what kind of person they are and then you, you know, you go all in on them. Or, I mean, I certainly don't, but some people seem to. Um, you know, if you're, as you said, it's it's not representative of what people are actually like. You know, if, if you saw your neighbour in the street and they had a different political opinion to you or whatever it is, you wouldn't start shouting abuse at them because it doesn't, in the real world, none of this matters. And I think that's a key point, uh, Kieran, is that uh, people in uh, marketing or media, for example, coming to terms with the fact that the mainstream really just simply don't care about a lot of the stuff that we care about, right? That's the big thing. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that applies to whether it's uh, the political issue of the day or, uh, you know, um, or, or brands themselves, you know, I mean, that's a classic one, you know, about the, the, you know, the market industry, hot housing, how much people think about brands and how much they, you know, uh, spend a lot of kind of very, very kind of precious brain power on deciding what choices they make between them. That's one of the, the classic pitfalls, isn't it? You know, whereas actually... You know, and this is what a lot of the behavioural science tells us, and this is something I, I think is very robust from it, is that people just simply don't have the spare cognitive capacity to be spending all that time thinking deeply about, you know, uh, what they're buying in the supermarket, or even, frankly, some even what seem like more high-involvement purchases as well. We get paid to think about this stuff. You know, the people out there in the real world just have got better things to do. You know? Yeah, I was good. I, there's some people um, or some notions in marketing that I don't know how long they think people spend on their shopping, but you know, if they were to be believed, they'd be in there for about six hours, right? Okay, I'm going to buy some coffee. Okay, oh, what do I feel about this brand's purpose? Okay, well, what, what's this brand doing for, for the environment though? Was it, oh, but they had this. People don't do that. They see, they go to the coffee aisle, they see the coffee they always buy, they pick it up, or, you know, if it's on deal, they'll buy the other one. It's, I think we overthink. Um, people's, you know, in the moment consumer choices way too much. Well, that leads us on to something that, I mean, it's another area where we've been quite prominent. A lot of the white papers we've published over the last few years have been really quite critical of social purpose marketing, you know, and mm-hmm. I've, I've actually written a lot of other stuff about that, I've been quite critical of it. I've got a few key criticisms of it, but one of them is just what we're talking about now, which is there's a tension between two things that marketers seem to believe in, in, you know, about the world right now. They've really embraced behavioural science, right? And that's really come into the mainstream in marketing. You know, everyone, uh, you know, if you look now, everyone in the market research industry seems to have, you know, 
some kind of you know angle on behavioral economics or behavioral science and what they do i mean it's often at a very kind of you know frankly superficial level but it's in the mainstream yeah and then if you take the what's one of the key principles from behavioral science is that idea that we've got what various different terms for it bounded rationality we're cognitive misers you know there's only a certain amount of that finite resource of rational thinking that we've got to use every day yeah, yeah. so you've got that in on one hand and that's been embraced and it's in the mainstream now in marketing and then on the other hand we've got this incredible kind of weight behind social purpose marketing which seems to be based on an entirely different thing, which is mm. people have got this incredibly detailed social and moral calculus about the, the, the toothpaste or the beans they're going to buy, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, the, 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 the two things just, the, there's not even an attempt to reconcile them. They just mm. seem to exist on different planets in, in the marketing universe, you know? Um, and, and, and people will argue both of those things, but don't seem to make the connection and the tension between them, you know? So that's one of my issues there, this idea that, you know, it's not that people don't care about, uh, you know, the planet, for example, it's that they just simply don't have, the way people are wired up cognitively and behaviorally means they simply don't have that calculus there when they're going around the supermarket, for example. It's just not. Yeah, like, as you said, one of the, I mean, basically all, you know, behavioral biases and the whole, I mean, yeah, basically everything in behavioral science all boils down to it's all shortcuts. Everything, all our biases come from a way of us shortcutting things, you know, like our, you know, paranoia comes from, oh, well, we don't want to be, you know, comes from when we were cavemen is, you know, is that, is that tiger going to come and kill me? It's that like, you know, it's all about shortcutting things. You don't have to overthink everything that we do. And then, as you said, but at the same time, we're, you know, promoting the fact that we're not shortcutting and actually people are making these long, complex, multi-layered, multifaceted decisions about which brand best represents what they care about and is also a tasty, you know, maker of baked beans. Yeah, exactly. And so that, and you're alluding there to, you know, that there's a, a lot of really... Uh, I think very useful and powerful kind of framework from evolutionary, uh, you know, science and psychology. And Rory Sutherland's a great exponent of this. Again, he talks about uh, costly signaling a lot in his book Alchemy. Mm-hmm. And actually, we we did a piece of research for the guys at Thinkbox um, that was launched at the end of last year, where Rory was invited onto the panel at the end to discuss it, because what that project was about was exactly that about how. Um, I, I, the audience for media out there intuitively uh, understand the quality of a brand just simply by its media placement. And the, 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 the thing they're doing there is using the exact same thing that the peacock mm-hmm. uses, you know, the peacock's tail, it signals its quality. Darwin would look at the peacock's tail initially and go, what the hell is that that tail for? You know, I can't see the evolutionary advantage of that tail. It's cumbersome. It probably means it's more difficult to get away from predators, etc., etc. And then, of course, they figure it out. The, the tail is so elaborate simply because it can afford to be that elaborate. And it's saying to the peahen, if I can afford to send all these resources on this tail... I'm a good bet. I must have all these other qualities. And it turns out the way that we understand brands is the same. If you put, if, if you advertise and control the experiment we did, we controlled for every other factor and we simply told people there was a brand that was going to be advertised on TV versus if it was going to be advertised on radio or you know social media, for example. There's a lot of other media in there as well, but just to give you three examples. Yeah. And using this idea of costly signaling, the same principle as the peacock's tail, People aren't experts in advertising. They have no idea what it costs to put an ad on the TV versus radio or social media. But they intuitively understand that TV costs more than radio yeah. or social media. And the brand gets then much higher ratings on quality, reliability, trust, etc., simply because it's seen in one context and in another. And this is the stuff that's really going on a lot of the time where we don't have enough time to think about stuff. So we use all of this really, really kind of, really effective and adaptive thinking, like signaling, to make decisions. And, and you know, that's a bit that it's very difficult to reconcile all of that stuff, which I 
entirely believe is a robust finding in, 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 in the way that people behave towards brands with mm-hmm. social purpose, which is about making very, very, frankly, nuanced and difficult decisions about what's right and wrong and where you're going to kind of put your support. So so these are the kind of interesting, you know, different tensions that we 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 kind of we're in that kind of you know mix of kind of debating these things on an ongoing basis. It's it's, it's good fun, but um, uh, it's quite difficult to go against the orthodoxy at the moment, which is about social purpose, because that's something that's been embraced very strongly by the industry, and it's difficult to talk about it without being back to your point about polarization, without being yeah. sucked into polarized debates, which make it sound as if. I'm saying that these things don't matter. I don't say that at all. I'm just saying I don't think it's how people buy their coffee, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, sort of similar to what I was saying earlier, you know, to hear one, you know, people take one thing you say and think that's represent, you know, think they have the entire makeup of your entire opinion. And as you said, like you're not saying global warming isn't an issue or whatever. You're just saying it's not an issue consumers care about maybe enough, maybe at the moment, maybe with a certain, like you're just saying it doesn't apply as much as, you know, the debate shouldn't be about, you know, what are we doing, you know, as a baked bean brand to save the planet? It should be, are we going on TV, as you said, you know, what, what signaling factors? Because these are, these are going to move the needle way more than any, you know, save the planet um, initiatives we roll out. Yeah. So when we, we, we did a piece of research last year, we've just updated it, and we asked a very, in some ways a very simple question, we're going to do a much more detailed experiment later on this year, but we asked marketers, we had a sample of marketers and we had a sample of what we call the mainstream, just the general public really, and we just asked them, we got this question where we ranked all the different factors that went into a buying decision. And really kind of quite inconveniently for the, the the social purpose argument, all the things that came at the top were things like quality, reliability, you know, uh, all the kind of, you know, value for money, all the classics, if you like. And, you know, things like uh, a brand's values, its stance on social issues, the environment were in there. And, you know... Uh, Forty percent of uh, marketers, for example, say the environment is an important consideration when they're, you know, thinking about what products to buy. But the point was, all of those elements were the lowest ranked considerations out of all the factors that might go into a decision. And it was the kind of the value for money, the quality, the reliability were were still the things at the top. And then what happened was when the pandemic started, marketers doubled down on social purpose and said, now that the world has changed, and I'm using that in inverted commas, you know, that's the, the, that's the, the narrative that was out yes. there. Yes. Now that the world has changed, um, uh, we, we will see a, a, a massive shift towards purposeful marketing because we've understood all these, through the lens of the COVID pandemic, it's finally occurred to us that there's a lot of shit going on in the world and you know people will want to kind of be more purposeful so what we did is the piece of research that we had out just as the pandemic started we repeated it twice since at the height of the lockdown last year and then we did it again in january when we're in lockdown too and you know like it's dark and it's even worse than the lockdown in the summer and all that stuff yeah um what is actually happening is people's uh, gravitation is towards quality and reliability and value for money. Mm. It's not towards purpose. And the point about that is it's back to what we were talking about earlier when you asked about what are the types of biases and behavioural kind of factors that we see being very kind of common. What is that down to? It's back to that thing about risk, Mm. you know? So it's about control. It's about locus of control. A massive exogenous event has impacted our lives. There's no denying that but not in the way that marketers have assumed. We feel less certain about the world. We feel we perceive risk more. So things like quality and reliability are more salient, you know? Yeah, like when the whole world's, yeah, the whole world's gone to shit. The last thing you need is the toaster to break. You know, you want the thing, you want no more things to go, you know, wrong, basically. So there's just that thing about, you know, um, it's, you know, understanding what the basic drivers are, you know, and um, and realising that some of the other stuff you want people to think about, it might be in there, but it's not the main thing. And mm-hmm. just be careful about what you're projecting onto 
people's behaviour that you might ideally want them to, 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 to do, but the reality is there's a lot of other kind of uh, more salient factors that are going to be, you know, there before uh, these add-ons, if you like. You know, if all else was covered, maybe you get round to thinking about purpose, but there's a whole lot of other stuff happens before you get there, is our argument, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think, yeah, as well, as I said about shortcuts, if you're in Tesco's wearing a mask and everyone else is wearing a mask and you're worried about distance and you're worried about, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to loiter in Tesco longer than you need to ex- potentially expose yourself and so on, The la- you know, you, if anything, your decision-making process is going to be even quicker because you want to spend less time there, you want to get away from crowds, keep moving, you know, get your space. The, the thinking time and the consumer decision-making time is even shorter. Uh, which just speaks to you know sort of everything you just said there. Yeah, and there's a thing. There's another thing as well. There's an idea that um, that's a bit about the, the contextual factors as well. There's an idea just that about yeah co- cognitive load as well. If you've got more going mm-hmm. on in your, on in your life, and yeah, you've got more going going on in your life because you might be figuring out homeschooling and you know all the other things, and you know works harder because of Zoom, not easier, and blah blah blah. Loads of other things might be going on. Well, you've just got less resources again to be going around the supermarket thinking deeply about purpose, you know? It's just, um, it, you've used up more of your kind of, you know, your your, your reserve of the, 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 the cognitive stuff that's needed to think about purpose, you know? So, uh, yeah, so this is this is this point that we, we earlier on in the conversation were saying about you need to take what you think you know about biases or heuristics or the behavioural science stuff that tells you how people are wired up and then you need to apply that to a certain context and see how those two things fit together basically and I think if we did that more we'd come up with answers that might not be as straightforward but they might be more realistic yeah um I love it absolutely brilliant uh just before we wrap up we'll play um a super short game I like to call desert island biases so you're on a desert island. You can only take three behavioural biases with you. What are you taking? And I know you said you didn't like the listy thing, but humour humor me for the for the game. Maybe, maybe, hey, maybe I said I didn't like the list. Uh, Keen as a cop out because I can't remember any biases, even though my business about it. <laughs> you can have you can have signalling as one. Uh, I think signalling is a big one because I really think that's a thing. And I think if you're on the desert island, signalling would be a highly salient thing. You'd be looking at every rustle in the bushes, and you'd be looking <laughs> yeah. at the, you'd be looking at the color of every fruit and plant, and figuring out if you could eat it. And you know, so you'd be doing a lot of stuff to do with signaling if you're on there. So I'll take that one. There's um, also um, the story about uh, I think it was was it Julius Caesar when he got somebody got captured, and the people that captured him said, "We're going to ask for you know five hundred quid for you back," and he said, "No, no, no, ask for ask for you know ten thousand. And like well, we're never gonna ask for that. They're not gonna give us it. But they went back and they asked for ten thousand. And then, you know, the people that were paying to get him back were like ten thousand. Man, this guy must be a big deal. He understood signaling. He knew that if if these if, if the pirates ask for more money, then he's gonna seem more important um, when they get him back. The other two I'll go for is um, uh, I'll go for choice overload, right? Because again, in the context of uh, your desert island thing. That would uh, the deprivation of desert island would show that uh, you know the lack of choice would actually make decisions a lot easier, you know, because you'd be uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. you say, and this is a this is a mistake that happens a lot, doesn't it? You know, this idea that uh, choice is a good thing. Well, it is to a certain point, and then choice becomes a difficult thing because we end up we end up having to cut the choice down again because we can only deal with so many kind of decisions. And I think that one happens a lot. We do a lot of work in. Uh, media research and I think we talk about choice overload a lot especially in the if you like the new on-demand world of you know mm-hmm. uh, video for example you know Netflix Amazon Prime etc there's so much stuff on there and it, that's a good thing but how do you actually find anything that you want and I think you know that in so many walks of life now choice overload is a massive like kind of factor so I'd take that one um, I've got one more. Is that right? I've got three. Yeah, yeah. So last one. Um, 
I like, and again, I'm riffing off of the Desert Island thing a little bit as well. I'm thinking about some of the kind of literature and films there's been about Desert Islands. And I think one of the effects that you've seen quite a lot in those is the endowment effect. Mm-hmm. So you place a irrational well, amount an irrational amount of value on things that, you know, you own, you know, so, um, you know, whether it's... The, the, they should rename it the Wilson effect. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Well, that's exactly where I was going with that. Yeah. yeah. So you anticipated Sorry, where I was I've going. ruined your story. No, Go that's good. Anyway. No, it's good. It's good because it's like. Uh, so, but but that's exactly the point. Yeah. The the. What what was it? A football or a volleyball or what was it? Yeah, a volleyball. I think volleyball. Yeah. 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 Um, should we say what it is? Because uh, in case uh, yeah, in case anyone's missed, missed our, yeah. our little injury. It's, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's 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 Tom Hanks and is it Castaway? The film's called. Yeah. 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 Castaway. And uh, yeah, his his volleyball becomes his friend basically, and you know, um, it becomes much more than just a volleyball. And we see this all the time in the real world as well. I mean, that's one of the reasons why uh, the housing market's so crazy because you know people value their house more than the people buying it do. You know, because it's their house and things like that. So that's my three. That's my three. Just as I plucked those out of the the big list of biases, you know that I was I was having my own choice overload there, uh, Kieran. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I know. I had the I had the whole list in my mind, and I just couldn't f- <laughs> pick any specifics out. But I've got there. <laughs> yeah. No, I like them. Uh, yeah. Some great choices there. Um, thank you very much for coming on. This has been uh, really, yeah, I've really, really enjoyed our chat this morning. Fantastic. We ended up we ended up not talking about Steve Harrison. There yeah. You go. Well, yeah. I'll have to get you back on, and we can. Yeah. We can touch on some other topics because, yeah. yeah, there's so much to talk about here. Yeah, great stuff, Kieran. Really enjoyed it. Okay, okay cheers. 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 Thanks a lot. Bye.